thought uh, having a church in, uh, in uh, school was a bit crazy. I'm getting ready to fly the freak flag right now. I'm going to need some help. Elizabeth, would you help me, please, up here? Yeah. Uh, Eli, would you help me out? Will you help me, buddy? Yep, that's good. Okay. This is our, okay, you stand here. No, no, right here, right here, right there. Okay. This is our Jewish couple. Matchmaker, matchmaker, make me a match, right? Okay, all right, so, all right, so, okay, hold on, hold on, hold on. Now, I need someone to play a Jewish mother. Kay, would you be my Jewish mother? So, the Jewish, the Jewish mother loves her daughter-in-law. She's like butter. She's like butter. But she's a little concerned about her son because he doesn't look like he's eating and he never calls. He just never calls. I'm not sure why. Yeah, right. Okay. Now, I need a Jewish rabbi. Who's going to play, who's going to play my rabbi? Mike, come play my rabbi. <laughs> Mike Fusenbitz, a rabbi. Okay. Right here. Okay. Right here. Good, good, good. Now, I need someone to play. Um, Katie, why don't you come help me? And Emily, why don't you come help me? You're going to be the Christians? Yeah. Okay. You're going to be right here. This is good. Now, um, let's see. I need, uh, um, Tim, I need you to be my Catholic priest. So I need you to sit right here. Okay. <laughs> Just, yeah, okay. So let's see. A rabbi and a priest walk into a bar, and the Church of God pastor ducked. Some of you will get that later. Okay, so, okay. So here's, here's the deal. Imagine with me you're in the first century, and you're living in Jerusalem, and um, we have this young couple who, um, they just got married. He's working and she's at home, and mother-in-law is waiting for the grandkids to show up. But they're doing what normal Jewish couples do. They go to the temple. So we're going to go over here to the temple. Now, stop right there. Okay. Now, at the temple, they're doing what they're doing. They're, 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 they're making their, the, the sacrifices they need to be making, and they're going for prayers, and they're doing the thing that all good Jewish couples do because they learn from mom and the rabbi how to do that. But they're over here and they hear these Christians talking about this person named Jesus. And, and every time they go, yes, and every time that they go to the temple, they hear them talking about this miracle-working rabbi. And after a period of time, they get the sense that maybe what these folks are saying, and you can be like waving your hands and doing what preachers do. <clears throat> this ought to be interesting, right? <laughs> but as, they, as, they're, as they're listening to the Christians, they begin to understand that this person, Jesus, might be who he said he was. He wasn't crazy, and he wasn't, he wasn't a, um, a heretic like people say he was. Maybe there's something to it. So then they go home. Let's go over here. Let's go see mom. Hi, mom. <laughs> and so as they're, as they're talking to mom, mom hears about, about Jesus. Yes, it starts wagging the finger like, are you good? Here, don't upstage the audience. Come back this way. There you go. <laughs> there, perfect. Yeah. So, so mom starts talking to the kids about this, these Christians, them over there. And she gets the rabbi involved. The rabbi is none too happy about what's going on. Give me your mean face, Mike. Game face, Mike. Game face. Okay. He's not happy about this. And he wags his finger too. 
and shows how Jesus was this heretic, that Jesus wasn't who he says he was. And yet our young couple over here are really be beginning to ask some very serious questions about who this Jesus Yes, they're thinking. They're thinking, right? <clears throat> and no, 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 no. And now daughter-in-law is not so much like butter anymore, right? And so what happens is they end up in between, right there, between their tradition and what they believe is the truth. And so what happens is mom and rabbi, turn their backs on the kids. They're no longer part of the family. And this happened over and over and over again in the New Testament church. So what's the young couple supposed to do? Well, the Christians invite them to come to their house. And they eat dinner together. And they have conversations about what it means to follow Jesus every single day. And over time, many hundreds of years, this was the normal practice for Christians, which, by the way, is a great idea when you're talking about small groups. Spend some time eating and then talking about what it means to be a follower of Jesus day in and day out. I've got this thing going on at work, and I'm not sure necessarily what to do. Well, let's talk about what Jesus might do, right? But see, then... Over a period of a few hundred years, things begin to change again. And you get a certain group of people who stand out in their study and contemplation. You can go sit down. <laughs> Don't be sad. Okay, mom and rabbi, you can go sit down. And, and there are certain Christians who are, are known for their contemplation and their study. And so they spend time thinking about and writing about and doing things um, in the church. And after a while, come on up here, what happens is, is that we end up with a professional, you can go sit down, class of clergy. And so now there's no longer this informal conversation that people are having about following Jesus, but rather the church has a particular format, has a particular understanding of what Christianity is supposed to look like and how we're supposed to worship. And what we do is we end up with church on Sunday. And so there's this formal relationship. Go ahead and do that. Yeah. We do this formal relationship. And so what happens is, is that if we're thinking about the lights as God, that the Catholic priest has now inserted himself between God and the rest of humanity. And so we missed all of the conversations and we missed the relational aspect of what it means to be a follower of Jesus and now there's this formal education that goes on. All right, you guys can sit down. Thank you. Would you give everybody a hand for helping out? So by the time that this guy comes on the scene, Martin Luther... He nails 95 theses on the door of a, of a church in Germany. And what's interesting is that um, we'll celebrate the 500th anniversary this October, by the way. It was 1517 that he nailed the, 
95 theses. And what a thesis was, at least in that day and age, was, was a, a, a listing of ideas or concepts, and it was an invitation, invitation to debate. And so what Martin Luther saw within the Catholic Church really bothered him. And so what he said is, come on, let's talk about it. Nobody wanted to talk about this stuff, but Martin Luther said, bring it. We need to talk about these things. And in so doing, he sparked what we call the Protestant Reformation. And inside that Reformation, something, one of the ideas that, were, uh, that was brought to the forefront was a criticism of the professional clergy that was between humanity and God. And Martin Luther and others like him said, no, 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 no. Because we have Jesus, every single one of us has access to God. There is no intermediary between those two. Amen. So when Kay prays this morning that every person can stand in the presence of Jesus, She's standing on a long, long history. It's a beautiful, beautiful notion that we don't necessarily need this professional clergy. And so what has developed over uh, a few centuries is what we call the doctrine, the priesthood of all believers. It's not just that there are priests that stand before God and humanity between the two, but the fact that we're all priests because we all have access to God. Does that make sense? So the priesthood of, of all believers. And, and I want to talk a little bit about this today um, as we, we start this series called Priesthood because we, we talk about being the church. And the more... Uh, aspects that we can have of what it means to be the church, and this is just one of them, the better kind of church we're going to be. We're going to be more of what God has in mind. And so I want to take this idea of priesthood, all believers, um, very seriously. And the idea is shaped in part by a particular passage in the book of First Peter. So in the New Testament, there's a series of letters. First Peter is the letter uh, written by a man named Peter uh, to a group of churches in what was called Asia Minor, which we now call Turkey today, okay? And so um, there, this passage that we find is in chapter two, and I want to read part of it. Go ahead and bring the next one up for me, Jason. This is beginning in verse four. As you come to him, meaning Jesus, the living stone, rejected by humans but chosen by God and precious to him, you also, he's talking to the Christians that are gathered in these various churches in, in what's modern-day Turkey. And he says, you also, like living stones, are being built into a spiritual house to a, what's the word? Holy priesthood, right? Offering spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now remember, in ancient Israel, the way that we um, were right with God was through animal sacrifice. But now, what we're suggesting here, what Peter is saying is, no, it's not about the animal sacrifice, but the sacrifices, the spiritual sacrifices that we make. Why? Because we don't need that intermediary. Does that make sense? Because we all have access to Jesus. Through, um, through our belief. Going on, skipping over to verse 9, we read this. But you are a chosen people, a, what's the word? Royal priesthood. 
a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Which, by the way, is a great idea. I would suggest that we continue to do that. Sing his praises about calling us out of darkness into his wonderful light. Right? Let's go and do that. If you were a first century Jew, it is very likely that these words would be familiar to you. Because I think there's something else going on in this passage, 1 Peter chapter 2. Remember, Peter himself is a Jew. And he is writing to churches that are comprised of Jews and non-Jews, but a lot of Jews. And so he's writing these words, and if you were a first century Jew, you would have heard these words before. There's this thing we call the principle of first mention. Principle of first mention. And normally, uh, the best way to describe it is that a New Testament author will take a word or a phrase or an image that's out of the Old Testament and appropriate it in his own writing. And the idea here is to call your attention to something that's going on in the Old Testament. In other words, what he's saying is, hey, I'm waving a flag here. I want you to understand that what I'm talking about is kind of like this thing that happened in the Old Testament. This is important, and I want you to, to get a hold of this. And so let's look at another Old Testament passage, Exodus chapter 19. God is speaking to Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai. He is making a relationship with the people of Israel. He's brought them up out of the land of Egypt, out of slavery. He's at the foot of the mountain. They're creating this covenant arrangement. I will be your God. You will be my people. And here's what he says. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests. A holy nation. How odd. A kingdom of priests. Next, um, oh yeah, it's five and six. You have this idea that in the Old Testament, God is calling this group of people to be a kingdom of priests. And now we have some continuity because over here in the New Testament, Peter is saying, yes, you are a royal priesthood. Do you see the connection here? That this seminal moment in the life of Israel, this moment when they become the people of God, what Peter is saying is when you follow Jesus, this is like that. This what happens here. When you follow Jesus, when you become like a living stone, you are created into this new priesthood. Isn't that cool? That we have this continuity between Old Testament and New Testament. That we see that throughout the entire text, God is up to something. Right? Hmm. Now, I think that's awesome. Obviously, I get a little excited about things like that. But unfortunately, it begs a question. It begs a very deep question. What does it mean to be a priest? 
So we're supposed to be this, you know, royal priesthood. So what does that mean? How do we do that? How should we now live? What, how should we act like? How do we fulfill this idea of being a royal priesthood? Well, to understand that, we need to understand what an Old Testament priest actually was. So that maybe we can understand it in that context and learn something and actually apply it today. There's a novel concept, right? Let's learn something from the Bible and actually live it, live it out. So we're going to explore that just for a moment. So think of it this way. <clears throat> God has always desired to be with his people, to actually dwell with them. We see that in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. God creates human beings and then spends time with them. Right? And then you know the story in Genesis chapter 3, human beings chose against God, created this um, separation, but God is not content to live with that separation. And so he goes on this rescue mission. And we see that throughout the entire text, but almost always it's about God spending time and being with his people living among, among them. And so when he goes to Mount Sinai and he creates this relationship, he asks them to build a tent, a tent of meeting. And every time I read about the tabernacle, that's the name of it, I keep, I keep thinking about this term glamping. You heard about glamping? Glamour camping. You take the two words, you put it together, <laughs> glamping. God, Yahweh, has got some glamping going on because he's got some very specifics about the way that tent is supposed to look. And when they build this tent, he obviously needs people to tend this worship space and eventually the tabernacle becomes the temple. And so he needs these people to come along and take care of the tent, to set it up and take it down when they move and make sure everything's operating smoothly and doing all the things that he's commanded them to do and, and help people actually worship appropriately. Hence, priests. So he, he takes on this group of people, priests. And so we can get some, a little bit of help in understanding what these priests actually did in the book of Leviticus. Now, Leviticus, how many of you have actually heard sermons preached out of the book of Leviticus? Probably not very often, right? Every now and then, yeah. Leviticus, the word means of the Levites. And, and here's, here's why it's important. There is uh, 12 tribes of Israel, one of those tribes is the tribe of Levi, and they were responsible for producing priests. So the tribe of Levi, the Levites, out of that tribe come all the priests of Israel. It's the majority of them. And the very first ones, um, uh, priests, uh, happened to be a man named Aaron, who was Moses' brother, and Aaron's two sons. So Aaron and his son become the first priests. And in the book of Leviticus, we find out just exactly when God calls them and sets them apart to be priests. We find it actually in Leviticus chapter 10. And um, let me just put, put this up on the screen. This is verse 8 and 9. Then the Lord said to Aaron, you and your sons are not to drink wine or other fermented drink whenever you go into the tent of meeting. This is the glamping tabernacle thing, okay? So... Uh, or you will die. <laughs> okay. God's serious about this, all right? Don't drink. 
when you go into the tent of meeting or you will die. This is a lasting ordinance for the generations to come, meaning this is not descriptive, this is prescriptive. So all, all y'all, that's how we say it in Oklahoma, all y'all priests need to keep this in mind that you don't drink when you go to work. Does it make sense? Okay. Why? Here's why. Next. So that you can distinguish between the holy and the common, between the unclean and the clean, and so you can teach the Israelites all the decrees the Lord has given them through Moses. In other words, I don't want any fuzzy thinking in the tent of meeting. I want to make sure that you are able to carry out your duties appropriately. And so there's no drinking. But here are the two things. This is the most basic of basic functions that any priest would actually have to distinguish and to teach. So Moses goes up on the mountain. He gets the Ten Commandments, a bunch of other ordinances. He teaches them to Aaron. Aaron and his sons teach it to everybody else. Does that make sense? And this becomes part of the teaching that goes on so that people of Israel actually understood what it was that God wanted from them. Now, this word distinguish deserves a little bit of explanation. We Christians like to think in terms of heaven and hell, right? Things that we do help us go to heaven or go to hell, whatever the case may be. Jews don't think that way. That's, those aren't Jewish categories. Jewish categories are, are slightly different. A, a, a Jew would think in terms of blessings and curses. If you don't believe me, read Deuteronomy chapter 28. God says, if you keep my commands, you will be blessed. You keep this covenant, you're going to be blessed. If you don't, you're going to be cursed. And just so that you know, out of that passage, Deuteronomy 28, a third of it is blessings, two-thirds of it is curses. God's kind of serious, right? Okay? So blessings and curses. Also, you have things that are um, uh, holy or common. There are some things that are set apart for God's use, and there are stuff that's set apart for everyday use. So uh, if you were going to wash your hands in the temple you would not use that same bowl in your house. It was set apart. It was holy, okay? Something very sim simple like that. So blessings and curses, uh, clean and unclean. The other one that you'll often see is uh, or holy or, or common. The other one you'll see is clean and unclean. Now, how many of you have actually had a kosher dill pickle? How many of you like kosher dill pickles? Come on now. All right. The word kosher means, and some people think it means it's blessed by a rabbi. That's not exactly true. Kind of. Uh, what it means is that it follows a certain pattern and is therefore clean for consumption. It means it doesn't cause you to, uh, to be unclean and therefore unfit for worship. So we call it kosher laws. We see this happen throughout the, the Gospel of Matthew. Things that are clean or unclean. There are certain foods that you're not allowed to eat. Um, for instance, pigs, which is really sad because the ancient Jews could not eat bacon. I can't even imagine that, right? So you have certain things that are clean and certain things that are unclean. And we have to be careful about the things that make us unclean because then we're not allowed to worship, okay? And, and there's a, a lot more to it, but just get this idea that these are the things that they're distinguishing. The final thing that we often see in the text is things that bring us life and things that bring us death. So not necessarily heaven or hell, but things that bring us life and abundantly and things that bring us 
death. And so the priest, his job was to distinguish between those things. As they observed things, they would evaluate them and try to make sure that they fit into this, this category so that Israel would stay in community with God. Please understand, when we are talking about this idea of distinguishing, we're not talking about judgmentalism. Because these things were in place as a shield to keep Israel in community with God. And unfortunately, like a lot of things, it later became a sword to keep certain people out. But that was never the intention. The intention was to help Israel stay in community, to stay connected to God. <clears throat> and I would, I would suggest this too, that it's more about helping Israel move from curses to blessings. They wanted to help people move from unclean to clean, from common to holy, from death to life. Their whole objective was to keep Israel moving towards those things that would keep us in relationship with God. In effect, they would mediate not intermediary, but mediate. Bring about God's grace. God says, I want to be with you. I want to dwell and be with you. In order to do that, these are the things that need to take place. So they became mediators of God's grace. Look, if you want to be in the presence of God, these are the things that you must do. Just so that you understand, I'm going to teach and I'm going to distinguish. Mediate. Not an intermediary, but to mediate these things. So a priest would mediate God's grace. Now, consider the rest of 1 Peter chapter 2. Let's go back to the New Testament. Next slide. Uh, here, here it is again, verse 9. But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Interesting here. It says, once you were not a people. The word here is laos. And it means people, <laughs> nation, or better yet, tribe. In other words, at one point, you didn't have a tribe. Remember our young couple. They're shunned by, by both their, their religion and their, their own family members. They didn't have anybody. They're on their own. And yet, it was the Christians who embraced them and said, be a part of us and became a surrogate family for them. You were once not a people. Now you are the people of God. It's a really beautiful term, laos. You see, for all of the Jewish categories, probably the biggest was Jew and non-Jew, Jew and Gentile. And in the church, underneath the lordship of Jesus, they were all one. There is no distinction. Paul talks about this. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. 
We're all under the Lordship of Jesus. It's this beautiful term that you were not a people, now you are the people of God. Now, here's the other one. Mercy. The Greek word here, eleo. Let me hear you say it. Eleo. Isn't that fun? Yeah, that's fun to say, right? You're going to be going around and people are going to say, what are you saying? I'm saying mercy in Greek. See, learn Greek. Amaze your friends. It's fun. Makes you the hit of a party. <clears throat> the term mercy here, eleo, means compassion by divine grace. It means to help the afflicted or seek aid for others. What's really interesting is, um, uh, go back to the next slide for me, Jason, the uh, last one, uh, backwards, yeah. Um, once you had not received mercy, in Greek it reads a little funnier than that. It says, once you had not been mercied, and now you have been mercied. Isn't that cool? The word here is really a powerful term. It's, man, you, it's not just that you've received it, you have been mercied. You have been given divine grace and compassion, right? So it's a beautiful, beautiful term. And I, I keep coming back to this idea that you are priests, a royal priesthood. And you are mediators of divine grace and mercy. That's your job as a priest. Sometimes it has nothing to do with people who are outside of the church or people who don't have a relationship with Jesus. Sometimes even inside the church, we need somebody to come alongside and give us some grace and mercy. Because I don't know about you, but I wake up and I really do dumb things. And there are days where I need that grace and mercy again. There's a beautiful passage, I think it's in Psalm, if I remember correctly. It says, God makes his mercy new every morning. And sometimes I don't realize that I need somebody else to help me with that. We are a royal priesthood. We're supposed to care for each other as we care for other people around us. Mediators of God's grace and mercy. So here's a question. How? How do you do that? How, how do you mediate God's grace and mercy? Well, let me give you a couple of suggestions. Here's the first one. The first thing is you need to look for some opportunities. There are things going on in your neighborhood right now where somebody needs some grace and mercy. Why? Because we live in a fallen and broken world and nobody gets out unscathed. It's going to hit the fan for somebody at some point in life and you are the mediator of God's grace and mercy. And so you need to actually look for opportunities because let's be honest, it's so easy to wake up in the morning and hit the, bed, you know, hit the floor running and not even realize what's going on around you. Uh, you. You could have people in your own family that are dealing with stuff and you might not even realize it just because you're so busy with your own thing. And that, that happens to all of us. So we actually have to break the cycle of our own tunnel vision and look for the opportunities. Here's the second one. Replace sarcasm with encouragement. I am very fluent in sarcasm. I'm really good at it. Likely is your. I grew up watching Cheers. It's the most sarcastic show on television, I'm pretty sure. Norm. If we want to be mediators of grace and mercy, remove sarcasm from your vocabulary and become people of encouragement. Because folks around you are desperate 
for somebody to believe in them, for somebody to, to exercise a little bit of love. How about that uh, waitress that gets your order wrong? Can you have grace and mercy? How about um, when you get charged the wrong thing at the checkout? Can you have some grace and mercy? Can you remove sarcasm when you're talking to someone? Hey, no, don't get me wrong. Sarcasm has its place. It's funny. But the vast majority of us don't need any more of that. What we really look for are people who encourage you and say, you know what, you can do this. It's going to be hard, but you can do this. We need people to believe in us. Here's a third. This is the Christian one to say, pray, right? But let me, let me, let me put a little context on this. You want to be a mediator of God's grace and mercy, you need to pray. But let me suggest something, <clears throat> because I think sometimes what happens is we say we're going to pray for people, and we actually don't. Um, or we hold good thoughts for them, right? So let's talk a little bit, just briefly, about prayer, very quickly. A couple of things to think about when you're praying. First of all, only do it for a short period of time. Maybe a day, maybe five days at the most. Um, Alicia and I have, have some, some neighbors of ours that, for whatever reason, have been on our heart. And so we just said, you know what, we need to, instead of grouse about them, because <laughs> it's really easy to do that. Can you believe that? And that's easy to do. But we said, you know what, why don't we take the next couple of days and just pray for them? Here's the interesting thing happened. I don't find myself grousing about them anymore. So prayer actually changes me and my perspective. Now, if God's going to, going to do something with them, well, praise God, you know, you know, calling us out of darkness, into light, right, kind of a thing. And we want that, and that's what we pray for, but what I find is that prayer often changes me and my perspective. So just commit for a very short period of time. Pray for it for a day or two. And by the way, if you ask somebody else, can you please pray for me, give them a timeline. Hey, for just the next two, three days, would you mind just saying a prayer for me? Because otherwise it goes on this list, mental list, that either gets forgotten or somebody's like, oh my gosh, this is going to take forever, or, oh, this thing that you want me to pray about is so huge kind of thing. Just give somebody a, a way, give them a timeline and just say, hey, for the next two, three days, I'm going to be focused on this. Would you mind just praying for me? But if you tell somebody that you're going to pray for them, just in your own head, commit that, hey, you know what? I'm just going to pray for the next two, three days. It doesn't have to be more than that. You, you think God can't use those prayers? Huh. Then we need to have a talk about Jesus, <laughs> Okay. Keep that in mind, is that you want to pray and just kind of a short-term thing. And be very, very specific about the things that you're praying for. Um, we have some very specific things that we're praying for our neighbors about. Not 15 things, two things. Not 37 things, oh, God help them because they need this, 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 and this. But maybe it's just one thing, right? So be specific about it. And then rinse and repeat as necessary. So let's say that you do it for three days, and a week later you realize, you know what, I think they need some more prayer. <laughs> Go ahead and do that. But just commit for two or three days. Don't, because um, what happens is if you don't give yourself a timeline, it becomes overwhelming, and then you choose not to do it. And that helps nobody. That is not mediating grace and mercy. You with me? So set yourself up for some success here. Here's the fourth one. Invite them into your circle of friends. Grace, mercy, 
always, always flows out of relationship. There is no drive-by grace and mercy. When you are standing at the checkout counter, you have a relationship. I'll tell you, I'll tell you something. This is if 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 you're ever, if you are ever at a checkout at a restaurant or at a grocery store and I am your customer, you're gonna talk to me. I'm just telling you right now, warning. These people who are just like, hi, and they don't talk to me, oh no, no, no. Challenge accepted. <laughs> We're gonna have a conversation about something. Because grace and mercy flows out of relationship always. Always. And I can say that categorically. So invite people into your circle of friends so that you can mediate grace and mercy to people who might need it. Make sense? Now, it's your turn to experience a little bit of grace and mercy. John Wesley, the great um, Anglican founder of Methodism, he talks about um, means of grace. And he chose the sacraments um, of baptism, and he chose the sacrament of communion. He called it a means of grace, a simple act that we do to experience the grace of God. We mediate grace and mercy by this simple ritual that Jesus gave us. We call it communion.